0: Well, here we are on the 3rd of February for Rational Radio. Would have been really nice if we'd managed to change the date to the 2nd of February, which I understand is the only time in. Nearly, well, many hundreds of years that you'll be able to write the date backwards and get the same result. Uh, and that's thanks to the former public protector, Tule Manuncello, who tweeted that this morning. Someone else who's been tweeting a great deal recently is our very own David Shapiro. And as always, we kick off the show by finding out from Mr. Shapiro what's happening. 15 years at Sasson, David. <laughs> It's like a lifetime. I can't believe it. I remember yeah, when yeah. you joined there, and I thought, my yeah. goodness, uh, David, you've escaped from the from the frying pan at Corp Capital, but have you gone into that. the fire? Oh. <laughs>
1: Corp Capital. Oh, oh, for a short time. It's a it's a difficult history. In essence, I've been. I'm, I'm celebrating more forty eight years on the JSC. Uh, at at one stage, we were bought out by Softgen, and when they pulled out the country, country in 2002, it just caused me to have unbroken service before I returned to Sassfin, which is really uh, my origins, which is Max Pollock and Fremantle and Frankel and changed name a few times. So, 15 years at this place, yeah. <laughs>
0: that, that's true, uh, and, it, and it's it, flown yeah, by, hasn't it?
1: It, it? Very much so, yeah, it has. Um, it's it's you know, it's been quite a lucrative 15 years. I mean, if you think about it, um, I started in the aftermath of the uh, bubble, the 2000 uh, internet bubble, went through the global frac you know crisis in 2008, um, struggled up for 10 years as we reflated the economy, and um, you know I I still think there's uh, a lot ahead. I've never lost my enthusiasm for markets.
0: You've never lost your enthusiasm for life, Mr. Shapiro, and, and that's one of the reasons I love talking to you, because it is. I mean, what, what's the point of living if you aren't, aren't happy about it, and you, you, you can't look at the bright side, even when there's so much muck around?
1: Yeah. You know, Alex, the thing about markets, and people uh, don't appreciate it, every day is a new challenge. You know, it's like... Putting out the chessboard every day, you've got to negotiate your way through it. And, and, and I've got to say, and you know this, that a huge amount of my enthusiasm has been achieved from people like uh, Buffett, you know, who give you the kind of philosophy with which to approach markets and understand. And, uh, you know, he always told you, just read, read, read. Mm. And that's the best way to tackle markets is just to understand what's happening around you. And when yeah, you Get a grip listen. of what's, what's happening around you.
0: And when you're tired of reading, read some more. <laughs> yeah. <W-E puppet. laughs> David, I, I hope you read the editorial today in Business Day. It's not, yes, I did. It's not I often did. That, that one comments on editorials yeah. uh, like this. but I did. Boy, that was a goodie.
1: I did. You know, and it's something that, uh, funny enough, I was, I was thinking about that on Friday when we heard news from Breit that they were going to pay this 200 million rand uh to the advisors who have destroyed so much value. And Alec, it's something that's uh it it it's very hard to get through this without naming names. But I'm I'm surprised at the number of companies it 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 still shatters me at the number of companies who are reckless with shareholders' funds and yet uh are never held accountable for it. And continue to draw money, or draw salaries, or draw big packages, despite the fact that they've, uh, you know, destroyed huge value. Bright is one of the areas we saw it some time ago with Tiger Brands, who've gone through a f- series of issues, uh, which is not. Cost management, nor Costa, it cost uh, the board, Steinhoff, uh, Blue Label, um, Tonga, Omnia, a whole lot of companies like that, you know, where huge amounts running into the billions have been destroyed, and yet no one's ever fallen on this sword or, or, or walked away or even held accountable. So it's a very strong story.
0: We'll talk about Tiger Brands in just a moment, but just mm. on, on this issue and that editorial yes. for those people who haven't read it. Uh, it, it contrasted what is happening at Tongart with the uh, board mm. of directors there who are drilling deep to find out which management uh, members or which executives um, did not behave correctly. And breit, where, as David just mentioned, they behave really poorly, and yet there's another 200 million rand that's going to be paid Mm -hmm. just to get rid of the advisors. Now, Dave, you live in this world for most Mm. people. They look at that and they say, there's something really wacky here. Explain how that can happen, or at least what their rationale might be.
1: I, I, don't know where, I don't know where they get their rationale, that there's no conscience that they might have entered into some kind of agreement which guaranteed their salaries or guaranteed them some percentage of something that, that they make up that 200. I mean, it's insane that this is a company, I think, uh, whose share price has gone from 174 down to 8 rand. They have destroyed enormous amount of value uh, for shareholders, for, for people, and yet they continue to draw Income from limited amounts that uh, are in the firm. And, um, so you know, their decisions, in my view, were absolutely reckless, uh, without much thought, gung ho, and, and still no recourse. So how do you explain that? How do you explain, uh, you know, there the, are the a whole lot of other stories where people have gone into investments without due consideration that have, it's not that this has been uh, depreciate it's not that that break lost the money over a, you know 15 20 25 years mainly because in some industries are uh, like um, mining industries where uh, they've you know exploited all the uh, what was left they've exploited um, the, the the reefs whatever it is um, but this is this is just recklessness. This was just going into companies that uh, they should never have got, that they overpaid for and never delivered.
0: Don't you think uh, that it, it's also had something to do with they were overpaid for their Steinhoff uh, holding by Marcus Huster? Then they took the money offshore as quickly mm-hmm. as possible, found the first thing, uh, what well, wouldn't have been sure. the first thing, but new look. Uh, seemed at the time to be a, a, a good idea. It was a shocking idea. But the, the, the consequences of that is, is what I think the, the editorial was trying to show, was that these people continue to draw big money, whereas, yeah. whereas at Tongart, which has also had a disaster, the chairman there, Louis Ponzena, actually cut his salary by half, mm. which is the kind of thing, the kind of message that one should be sending.
1: Absolutely. And he came in late. Louis came in much later. So he's there to turn the company around. And I think so. Hey, am I on the right track? Because no, I've never really.
0: No, he's, he's, yeah. he's, only yeah. so
1: he's, he's coming in and saying, listen, you know, we can't afford that kind of salary. i you know, I'm here to, to turn the company around. This is what we're going to do, which is the absolute right attitude, you know. And, uh, um, Tonga's in a very difficult situation. Uh, it's a, it's a company that's been around a long time. Um, uh, it's got very good assets, even though they haven't, performed well, there is a good chance that they can turn it around. Um, and he's, he's going to give the company a chance by cutting back on unnecessary, what, what one would deem as unnecessary expenditure.
0: So Move on uh, to Tiger Brands, because yes. there's a bit of controversy yes, there. The, yes, yeah. uh, at last, Lawrence McDougall has mm. departed. Now, he's the guy yes. who was in charge when Listeriosis uh, came yep. out where 200 people died, where they tried to Almost backstop, you could say, it was because of the lawyers. But the reality is, he was in charge. He should have fallen on his sword, in, in my opinion, and I don't know what you yeah, think, David, yeah, yeah. when that whole thing broke, because mm. they did not support or did not work with the, with the authorities. Can we yeah. start there? Did he over- I th- I th- Yeah,
1: I, th- I think you're right. First of all, he came with a good reputation. I think he came from Mondelez, which was Cadbury's, very strong. So he had the background. And what happened is the crisis broke, but it was handled so badly. So shockingly, in other words, initially, they denied any uh, culpability they, and uh, any blame. And yet, um, when you looked into it, you know, they were surely to blame for whatever reason. And he should have resigned at that stage. You know, even though he was new to the company, I think the way that he handled it, um, uh, you know, made the company lose credibility. In other words, people lost faith in the business. So I think from that point of view, it was just a matter of time you know, once his contract was up, that he would go, that they would not renew it. So now, now
0: mm. they've replaced him with mm. Neil Doyle. Yeah. And, and I, lo- I love the interview <laughs> that I saw that, that uh, it was on TV, I think it was, uh, uh, with uh, Kortomo Kele, the, the chair of Tiger UK, yeah, He The chair, yeah. Came across, to me, he came across very well. Uh, he, he explained that Neil Doyle 20 years ago was one of many executives who got nailed by the a competition Commission mm. inquiry. He happened to be part of that whole thing. Nick Dennis, we remember him well. He departed at that time. And, and he said, Kotzow said, this guy is pretty good. Uh, Neil Doyle, he's the right person to be running the business. Mm. Uh, we looked internally, uh, externally. We found the right person. But the question, I guess, has to has to remain. Mm. Uh, if he was tainted 20 years ago, yeah. d- should that still stick on his record? I'm
1: we don't know, you know, from what do my you point think? of view, what do you think? I, I, I think that it's strange that he did come back. I think that he could have been in maybe a secondary role, a CFO or somewhere in the background. I think that might have been acceptable, but he now takes over the CEO role. You know, you know, you know what I mean, that's, that perhaps is questionable. Uh, if he was a, board director and perhaps he could have explained I wasn't there I just happened to be on the board You know, Nick Dennis did the right thing, he fell on his sword at that time and uh, felt that the right thing to do was to resign uh, we never know whether he had knowledge of it or not uh, I know Nick well um, I can't really comment but um, uh, he would never go back you know, he might he might uh, run other businesses than that, but I think that's also questionable. Uh, you know, a, a questionable choice now. Um, and and um, this is a company which is you, you, you see, Alec. You have to look at the background as well. So you had the bread fixing, okay, the bread price fixing. They then went into Nigeria. Wiped out I don't know how many billion in one or two years. Come back here, listeriosis. <laughs> so this is like the third big scandal that they've had in a very short time.
0: You almost think you should bring in someone fresh. Uh, it's, not, it's not a good idea to, to have succession planning uh, or to have no succession planning. But in this case, anyway, good luck to Neil Doyle. Let's hope that, let's hope that he proves all his critics wrong. You see, I, 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 oh, yeah. it, it looks to me like they might have the right person there, but I don't think the public are going to be agreeing with that. But just closing off that, we've had a number of quarterly results that are coming out yeah. of the United yeah. States. Amazon shot the lights out. We love yeah. it because it's 21% of our portfolio. Apple did yeah. very well as well. We yeah. also love yeah. that, a big part of 18% of our portfolio. Netflix also improved on results. Yeah. You, you've got to ask, how far can these stocks go? I, they can continue to go.
1: You know, don't underestimate their power and don't underestimate the changes that you're seeing in the global economy that are pointing that way. Um, the continual, I've mentioned this before, this huge demand for data and the huge demand for, uh, you know, with data or the industries around that. Have a look at Microsoft. Have a look at Amazon where they made their money, where a huge amount comes from the cloud. And uh, that's data storage. So I don't think this is over. And I think that you stick with your incumbents. I don't think it's time to get rid of your incumbents. You know, In other words, stay with the winners. Rather, sell the losers. And I think those would be some of the old-fashioned companies that we knew, the smoking companies, the drinking companies, uh, companies like that, you know who are finding uh, competition very tough uh, because of the way that uh, people consume now or because of the way that, that marketing is done. So I think that uh, I would stay with them. I'm not, uh, I'm not selling mine.
0: David Shapiro, who today celebrated 15 years with Sassman Securities, the deputy chairman, but he says it's more important for him because he's celebrated 48 years. On the stock exchange, it's a lifetime and a half. And I think if you consider that the contribution the Shapiro's have made, Archie, David's father, who was Mr. Gold in the JSE for probably as long as David's been there, and uh, now Mr. Shapiro himself. Ah, oh, man. And you know, Dave's uh, in his 70s, but he's as enthusiastic as a 20 year old. What a pleasure to be able to talk to him so often as we do. Also, a pleasure today, and most unusual. Was to cross to a BizNews community member or members, Gary and Andy Cronier, who are in China. So they're right in the middle of coronavirus land. And it's really a fascinating interview. Uh, have a listen. I'll pick up with a pre record. I was a bit scared about the communications that we might have between here and China. You can't just, uh, you can't find them on WhatsApp to start with. But we did manage to get through. Only with one little cut, which I've edited out, so you won't hear that. But uh, let's hear Gary and Andy. Going across to China now, to Hangzhou, and it's a warm welcome to Gary Cronier, formerly of Durban. Uh, What are you guys doing in China, Gary? We are both teachers,
2: uh, English teachers, and uh, yes, my wife, myself, and my son, Morgan, is here. And we are absolutely enjoying ourselves in China.
0: Even with the coronavirus, which is actually the reason why uh, we we would like to have a chat with you today. So we know in South Africa that there's quite a lot of drama around the coronavirus and and how it has now claimed its first victim outside of China in Indonesia this morning. But within the the country itself, has it changed the the normal day-to-day life? Everything has changed in the normal day-to-day life.
3: It's dramatically different. We've had the ultimate staycation <laughs> for this holiday. Yes. Uh, it's just unbelievable. Everything is on lockdown. Uh, it's quite... It's like a zombie apocalypse here.
2: <laughs> yes. The shops... Uh, I sent you some photos. You'll see the shops. The lights are off. The malls are closed. Locked down. Only the, the supermarkets that's, that supplies food... Um you know in big bulk, they are still open uh we have to we are lucky to be in between two big ones, so we can walk there and back where other people have to have taxi or what we call a diddy here. and um that, that service is limited, very limited
0: so we, do you guys stay in a complex of some sort or do you, uh, yes it's a community mm mm-hmm. mhm
2: it's, it's called the community. There's five blocks of flats or, um, you know, apartments. That's 25 floors high, um, all the apartments. And from there, everybody enters and exits by one gate.
3: Yeah, we have a central, we have a central governing body for the complex, and they provide us with our security. And they're the ones that are responsible for scanning us when we come back in. Yeah. So, Andy, are when, for
0: when you go out of the complex, do they, do they when you say scanning, just explain that process.
3: Right. So when we go out of the complex, it's not really a problem. We will go up to the supermarket uh, because the, the convenience stores in this little area are all shut down. Uh, the fruit shop uh, sometimes opens just so you can get some fresh fruit, but the local convenience stores are closed. So we'll go up to... Bravo, which is one of our biggest supermarkets here, and in order to enter, they will take our temperature. Um, We're not allowed to bring any other produce or bags or anything into into the supermarket. So they'll scan us with a digital thermometer, they'll check, and they'll show us. Then we can go in. All the shops in the supermarket um, building, they're all closed. So it's just the supermarket that's open. So you can go in and get all your goodies that you need. And then when we come back to our community, they know us. Obviously, we live here. We have to then sign in. We have to present them every time with our passport. In Hangzhou, we do everything on the phone. Nothing. we, We don't carry physical copies. It's all done on our phone. So they'll take our passport numbers, our names, ask us the same questions, and then they'll digitally scan us. If our temperatures were too raised, I would assume they won't let us in, which should be quite
0: uh, traumatic. I, well, I imagine. That, but so every time you go in and out of the building, you ask the same questions? Yes. Yes,
3: they have to because now they – remember, it incubates for a 14-day period. So they are very worried that maybe on our outings we've come into contact with somebody – uh, no, we're very lucky because two weeks before this epidemic had broken out we were both at the hospital every day, he was being nebulized so it was
2: she had bronchitis,
3: bronchitis. so thankfully we were all antibiotic up and we got out of it before this was declared Well
2: we had two bouts two of <laughs> antibiotics and treatment and medicine before it left us but what made us think about it was that when we, took med- when we got the script and what the doctor said to us, don't eat chick- um, fish and don't eat eggs. For, for
3: 14 for, days. For 14
2: days. So I think maybe then they already knew something, but they, they didn't really tell us.
3: Yeah, they, and, they were very worried about it when we took our son yes. to the hospital. He was also coughing and sneezing. And they uh, did a blood test and a throat swab. And they were like, no, 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 no chicken. No, no fish, no egg. <laughs> Fourteen days. not. Wow. Now remember when we go to the when we go to the hospital, uh, we either have to rely on translation, or one of our colleagues must come with us. Yes. We were very lucky. We had a, a very good friend of mine. She came with to um, to translate. Most of the doctors can write English very well
2: that's speaking. Mm. They, will write, they will write on the, the, the page, bleed, Instead of, and then we know we need to go for blood tests.
0: <laughs> I got it. But what about people who drive cars? Surely, if you're talking about a virus, if you're going into an area ah, that might they, be infected, how do they handle that?
2: No, well, you've, well, I've seen you, I sent you a photo from the taxi that we took <laughs> to one day. The streets are empty.
3: Yes, people are, remember in China as well, Uh, Over the festival time, it's unrestricted and people can drive everywhere. Uh, But in the normal day-to-day life, every day there are two registration numbers that, say your registration number ends in a six or a one, for instance, on a Monday, you cannot drive. So there's restrictions on driving around. But for the festival, it's normally open. Uh, But people are not really traveling around because as we're sitting here, there is somebody announcing downstairs that stay in your homes, With only your masks. go out if absolutely necessary. So people are all staying
2: at home. And the roads are still empty. It's, a, it's supposed to be a working day today, but the roads are empty. Yeah. So you people said,
3: are, a lot of things. You They're said a masks? Worried.
2: Masks? Well, yes. yes,
3: masks. Sorry.
2: Yes, they, we, we luckily bought, before we came, before this whole epidemic started, we bought our mask <laughs> and we, we're not allowed to go out without it. Yeah, the cops patrol so, the streets. Mm. And if they see you don't have a mask, they tell you to go and get a mask. They
3: stop you. They're very, very. Uh, we bought the washable ones. Uh, it does have a place for a filter. So they're happy with it. Um, and they obviously, whenever you go anywhere, they tell you don't touch your face.
2: Don't um, rub your eyes. Don't rub
3: your eyes. Don't put your fat hands in your, your fingers in your mouth until you've washed your
2: hands. But I must say that the, the star people here in our community and the rest of China is the old people. Why I say that is <laughs> the old people are cleaning the buildings. They're scrubbing the floors. Eight o'clock in the morning. It's yes. winter. It is cold. They're outside scrubbing the floors, washing down the, the, the lift uh, doors. Washing the floors.
3: Everything has clean full on it.
2: Everything. They so, clean the gardens. <laughs> they clean the passages. Everything.
3: So you, it's not uncommon at the moment to see them walking around with a big tank of insect, uh, um, disinfectant. Yes. And they spray everything. And
2: it's all voluntary work. So they are the big, big helpers in China. And I respect them for
0: that. You, you mentioned in, in uh, the mail you sent me with all the pictures, the happy truck. What is that?
3: Oh, <laughs> it's it's called. It's part of Hangzhou sanitation. So every day they drive past and they clean the streets and they wet it down. Because but, unfortunately in China we do have a habit of the people spitting. So it's quite. They've actually told everyone you're not allowed to spit. It's not unusual. People, you'll just walk past something and go seriously. <laughs> yeah. So they clean. The streets. But yes.
0: Like like and bad spit, is it? Do they spit? It's we like
3: it. a bad spit. It sounds yeah. like it's being pulled from their toes. <laughs> yes. <Yeah, laughs> no.
2: Okay. Oh. It's worthy. Oh,
3: absolutely. And I run in the opposite direction. I'm like, oh, my goodness.
2: But Morgan, our son, named the truck the Happy Truck because it plays this absolutely wonderful <laughs> little tune. Yes, it
3: plays a little dinky of it's a small world after all and you're here in the morning.
2: the water comes uh, and you run.
3: Yes, because you're standing at the bus <laughs> and you're like, the Happy Truck,
0: run! But, uh, but that, that spitting habit, uh, surely oh, that's, that that would... Spread the virus a lot more easily if you happen yes. to have it.
2: Yes.
3: yes, it is. in In Shanghai, in the bigger cities, as far as I'm aware, is it has you. You can get fined, but in the smaller cities or the more the cities that are still developing, uh, it's not a problem yet. Hmm. Um, we we have sat in the train. Yes, and uh, not the high speed train, but the normal trains under uh, the subways, and you just see the guy just sort of like, <laughs> carries on, I'm like,
2: oh yes. my God. <laughs> the old lady next to me in the hospital, she just wallowed one out, and I'm like, oh no, in the hospital. Yes. So yes. But
3: I must say, as as uh, as, gros- as gross as it sounds, they're very quick to come and clean it up. <laughs> but now everywhere it says, no spitting, don't do it. And I'm like, this should be common sense. <laughs> it's It's probably... One of the strangest habits that we've had to get used to. I don't think I'll ever get used to it, ever.
0: And it, uh, <laughs> you mentioned that in the bigger cities, so in where you live, in, in Hangzhou, is this reflective of what's happening elsewhere in China, i.e. the yes. shops being closed and, uh, and having yes, I, to... I have
3: another friend, also from uh, South Africa. She is in Shanghai. And she sent me a video the other day. It's it's like a ghost town.
2: And Shanghai has got 29 million people. It's,
3: oh, I actually don't know their demographics. But I just know that it's it's very full. I, we went to Shanghai a while ago. And if you're on the subway, you don't have to move. The people will move you for you. <laughs> it's quite
2: wonderful.
4: Yes.
3: Um, so everyone, because Shanghai is so crowded, they're not going out. Hmm. I have another couple of my students have gone to Japan, have gone overseas. Um, and they're not coming back until they feel
2: yes. safe. Schools were supposed to start on the 9th of January we've just no, got an email no, that no, on the 9th of February, of February. Yeah, originally No, 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 9th of January
3: No, that's a lunar year oh. Yes, so what happens is uh, the schools were originally supposed to start Spring Festival was supposed to finish on the 1st of February Now remember, we are, they, ca- they calculate the Spring Festival according to the lunar calendar, so now we're talking the normal calendar that we know Then mm-hmm. they have extended it through the 9th and um, your high, the high school that Gary works with has just told him... On, the 17th. on the 17th.
0: Yeah. So they pushed it out another week. Yes.
3: And, and actually it has a massive impact. Remember, this has only happened twice since the founding of the People's Republic of China. And that is 70... It will it'll be 71 years this year in October. Wow. And it has a great impact on the high school students because they are going to write in June final years, um, like we have matric exams, they have something called the Gaokao, which is the most important exams of their lives. And one or two weeks out of school is a big difference for them. So they're just going to have to, these kids are going to just push them out. And on the
2: economic (laughs) front is uh, George, my friend, he works on imports and exports on the shipping industry. He says there's so much stock to leave China, but they cannot. No, they can't. They can't.
0: You're really bringing us uh, or bringing the whole thing home to us by sharing these insights. But what about South Africans? Uh, Is South Africa doing anything for its citizens, people like you who who are there in the country?
3: We haven't experienced any help from the South African government. We tried, I think it was last week, we tried to get a hold of our embassies. We phoned both the Shanghai embassy. And the uh, Beijing Embassy. We do understand that it is during the spring festival period, so most of them had either skeleton staff or were not open. But we did get hold, they did obviously have messages on to say, in case of emergency, please phone these numbers. So we phoned them. Two of them were, the calls were just put down. Um, And then the other ones that we got off the Turco's website the numbers simply do not exist. Hmm. A lot of our friends that are from South Africa, that are in China, tried to phone DERCO directly and they get told not very helpful things. <laughs> so it is quite frustrating. We got an email, we got some information that's up, that says we can look on the um, website for communicable diseases in South Africa. We got the address uh, the web address, and it doesn't really it, it tells you about the virus. So we all know what the virus is and how it's contracted, but it doesn't offer and say,
2: this is what you should do. Or this is where you can go for treatment in, in case you
0: have any symptoms. But what happens have, if, if you wanted to come home? They you you say you can come home.
3: <laughs> they haven't really been specific. Some people say you might be subjected to quarantine, but they say you must put yourself into quarantine. Yes. From all the different feedbacks we're getting from Durka and from our friends that are phoned, they're just like, do it yourself. (laughs) We have a friend that is flying back to South Africa um, in three days. As far as we know, there is no quarantine restriction on him, and we'll be able to give more feedback to you once he lands in South Africa.
0: Well, you can be sure we're going to be talking to Andy and Gary Cronier again. As you heard, uh, teachers who are in uh, the middle of China and they are, well, r- confined to barracks as many people in, South- in in China are. Fascinating. Just so fresh to be talking to uh, those who aren't uh, professional interviewers. Uh, I, I, I love it. I love talking with members of the business community. And we're going to be talking to someone who's also not a professional interviewer, I guess, uh, Pierre van der Hoeven, who is involved in the cannabis industry. Now, Titoum Boeni, the Minister of Finance in South Africa, tweeted this morning or last night, I can't remember which of the two, but about the cannabis or dacha plants that are on his farm, growing wild and huge, and he says, come on, he needs the tax money. Why can't we legalize this? We'll be talking to Pierre in just a moment on the latest for cannabis in South Africa. Well, as promised, Pierre van der Werfen joins us now. Pierre, just to, just to kind of put things into perspective, are you any, uh, any connection to the van der Werfen at Komei? Ah, uh, no. <laughs> different branch of no. the family
4: then. Mm. Different branch. I, was, I don't even think it's the same family actually. Uh, I was hoping... And I think he, he's slightly different. He's, his name spells slightly different to mine. Ah, uh,
0: okay. I was hoping you could give us some inside track on what's going on there because they have gone <laughs> to ground all sides. Anyway, but it's much more interesting what we're going to be talking about because we have a, a fascinating situation here in South Africa where the Minister of Finance who has a farm in Machubas uh, yeah. kulaf has got cannabis plants, or what we used to know in, in, in this country as Dacha, growing wild. He says on Twitter, come and arrest me if you think this is illegal. Um, I'm, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. And he says, please, I need the tax money because we we are under a lot of stress in South Africa financially. Let's legalize this industry. We could be one of the best in the world. So... You're in it now. How did you actually get into cannabis?
4: Um, I started a few years ago. I grew up in the Eastern Cape and uh, it was around and people were farming illegally. Um, but it, 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 it paid for a, a certain demographic. It paid for school fees, gave them a small income. Um, and then I started watching the international markets and seeing it being legalized all over the world. And uh, uh, it became the fastest growing industry in the world last year. Um, so about two years before that, I started working. I did a consulting job for the government about the economic opportunity. And uh, for the last two years, I've been working flat out to set up a cannabis company in South Africa, as well as getting involved in some policy issues.
0: Yeah, why is it that the Canadians have got the jump on us here? Because, I mean, they're billion dollar companies now in this field yeah. based in Canada, yeah. where surely Cannabis or, or, or grass uh, or dacha uh, just grows wild in this country, and yet these companies are having to do it in a different way in one of the coldest countries in the world.
4: Well, if we go back and we see and we question why is this plant illegal, it is the most bizarre story of corruption and racism and just corporate theft, quite frankly. Um, and the United Nations uh, s- uh, sent out a, something called the single de- declaration and declared this plant absolutely illegal and of no benefit to mankind. So it was, it was classified in the same category as heroin, which was completely insane and was done for commercial reasons. Um, and every country, including South Africa, signed or many countries signed the single, uh, single declaration. Canada then said, Hang on, we're just going to break ranks. We don't, we don't uh, believe it's right. And they launched this massive billion-dollar industry, and they're world leaders by far now. Um, There are other countries with progressive drug policies, like Portugal, um, and smaller countries people probably wouldn't have heard of, like Uruguay, who who also went down the same route. Um, South Africa then said, okay, we will legalize medical marijuana, so that uh, medical medical cannabis. And that was done a few years ago, and there's a process now to issue licenses. Um, but it all starts at uh, absolutely in the wrong place. You can't ban a plant. Um, you can go down to the garden nursery and buy a poppy, um, and nobody gets scared that you're going to turn it into opium. So the, the, the whole setup is just bizarre. It's, it's really strange, so if, but the Canadians mm. just grabbed the opportunity and they built a massive industry out of it, uh, and they are now by far the world leaders.
0: So if I understand you clearly, uh, had the South African authorities at that point in time bucked the trend and gone along with Canada, we might have had a, well, a multi-billion dollar industry in the same way that they have.
4: Yeah, I wouldn't even say much. I would have said... I'd be even stronger than that. We would be addressing our unemployment issues. We would be addressing economic growth, particularly in rural areas. We would have generated probably over a million jobs by now. It is an absolute wasted opportunity, and we couldn't be better suited as a country um, anywhere else in the world. Uh, It grows wild here.
0: Okay, so that's the past. But if we are where we are today, and many countries, including many states in the United States, have legalized Mariana, uh, why would the South African government, who, as you've mentioned, you are talking with, why have they not grasped the nettle, given that even the finance
4: ministers say they should? (laughs) Who knows? There's no real reason for it. But then, why again have we made so many mistakes in the man- in the management of our country? So I think there's a there's an element of capacity, there's an element of lack of knowledge, there is an element of turf wars where each department saying it's mine, no, it's mine, and and there is this process that's just getting bogged down in bureaucracy, uh, which is really unfortunate. Uh, and we can see the frustration coming from people like the uh, Minister of Finance, where he's going. Come on, guys. Let's get moving with us. What would it take to get moving? Well, you know, 18 months ago, we had a very interesting thing where our constitutional court declared private use legal. Now that that took us right to the, the to of the most liberal countries in terms of the attitude towards the consumption of it, but. The guidelines have never been issued and in fact in retrospect they're probably complicated stuff because it is it is now become a debate about recreational use um, of cannabis as a drug if you want to call that. I hate that word, but it is similar to alcohol. Whereas the the big debate should be not about that. The big debate should be how can we launch a world standard competitive industry <laughs> Um, and a lot of the noise you're hearing around cannabis is only around one aspect of it, which is recreational use or adult use, as they call it. Um, whereas we really should be talking about job creation within the medical field, um, and we really should be talking about hemp, which can be grown at an industrial scale and can solve all kinds of environmental issues. Um, yeah, so so some our, our debates got a little bit lost. Um, mm-hmm. And again, I think it's just inefficiency in a way.
0: Okay, well let's hope somebody decides to listen to Tito and get off their butts and make this thing happen, because it sounds like it's a huge industry that's available. Uh, When I read I I googled this morning uh, Motley Fool, and there they've got Three tips of the three best cannabis stocks, for instance. One that, that uh, extracts the THC and CBD. We won't go into that, yeah. but it's parts of it that the hallucinatory part of it. Another one that uh, grows the stuff, with the lowest cost grower in the world. And you think, my goodness, yeah. wait until South Africa comes in there. You you, you wouldn't have a chance. Yeah, exactly. And the other exactly. one that, that uh, distributes uh, or, or actually acquires properties which they then lease to cannabis growing companies. I mean, these are extraordinary uh, diversity already in an industry. that, yeah. that seem, They seem to be so far ahead of us. So how do we leapfrog? How does South Africa, given that, that, that it needs to, to grow, to, to play to its strengths,
4: how does South Africa leapfrog this? Well, there's a couple of initiatives underway. SAPRA is about to reclassify um, Cannabis as a plant and the ingredients from can, cannabis like THC or CBD. So that's under, underway, uh, and that will change things a lot. Um, the Department of Agriculture is saying, look, we'll take over hemp, uh, and we'll just issue permits and we'll issue them quickly, which is, which is fantastic news because anything that gets plants in the ground, um, is, is going to build the industry. Um, the, the, the economic side of it, the investment side, the private sector are all looking at this chaos that's in the cannabis industry, and they're all waiting, which is unfortunate. So, the, But I do know some of the uh, the, the big banks are, are are very interested. There's a conference coming up. So I think we just need to unlock the issue with the permits and start issuing the licenses because that's where it all starts. Um, if you if you want to take a chance, the risk is you end up in jail. The hawks have been railing people who've applied for permits. Um, the arrests are continuing. So it's just far too risky to do anything until you have some kind of legal endorsement from the government. So the, the key to everything is issue permits and issue licences. Um, we know. And, and SAPRA is responsible for that uh, with the Department of Health. And unfortunately, the SAPRA is also an institution with, with huge capacity issues. So I think they're, they're struggling to deal with all these applications. But uh, hopefully that can be fixed and can be fixed quickly.
0: Yeah, we know that there are many junior miners in South Africa that are listed on other stock markets, uh, Toronto, um, Sydney, etc., Perth, uh, that are exploiting South African reserves and then benefiting uh, shareholders in those countries. Are there any international players, and I guess here you could could point really to the Canadians, who are doing the same in South Africa or
4: in Southern Africa? The the Canadians… are here in force. The world knows that when South Africa starts, because of its infrastructure, financial systems, climate, uh, it's going to be a massive force in the industry. In fact, it could dominate global production of cannabis. Uh, They've are. they been here for years. They are pheno hunting. They're hunting for the land strains. Probably the most valuable strain comes from South Africa, and we're losing all the IP around that. So they are here. Um, and there was an announcement of a 2.5 billion rand indoor facility in Cape Town. I uh, go figure that. I mean, why would you go to Cape Town and then build an indoor facility? That doesn't really make sense. But anyway, um, yeah. So they, yeah, and, to- and they, they can, they want to turn us into farmers. That's what the international community wants to do. They want to turn Africa into a raw material supplier based on low-cost production. And we cannot let that happen. We need to beneficiate and add value in our country if we really want to benefit from this industry.
0: Unintended consequence, uh, if we are now allowed to smoke, uh, MJ, Mary Jane, uh, and get in a car and drive, surely that's a risk to an already high accident rate.
4: Well, you know, the, the law already says you can smoke privately. So we've already got that. We are already one of the, the fourth biggest um, suppliers in the world, and we have been for years. So the production capacity is already here. So this, this huge fear of diversion to me is a complete smoke screen. If you really want to buy cannabis, anybody can buy within probably three k's of their house. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of givens. What we need to do is include the illegal market. We've already got a legal market for uh, personal consumption. But even that's strange. So you can consume, you can carry, but you can't buy. Well, then, where do you get it from? Um, you know, you grow it. No, not everybody who lives in a flat or in a small environment can grow their own cannabis. So even our laws are contradictory. Um, Lots, yeah.
0: lots to fix up on that side. Pierre van der Hoefen, uh, giving us a fascinating insight there into an industry where South Africa could be, should be, will be the world leader. Just got to get off our butts and make it happen. And even the finance minister is, uh, is agitating for this. Uh, That's an industry uh, that I'm going to be keeping a close eye on as we start seeing South African companies um, building themselves and perhaps even listing on the stock markets uh, to see the opportunity that, uh, or replicate what has happened in Canada, where there are billion-dollar companies now and being tipped widely as being the greatest uh, investment opportunities over the next 10 years. We'll be returning to Eskom in just a moment. Well, joining us now is Lydia Peterson, who is a activist, and uh, well, this morning was part of a uh, gathering to start bringing pressure on Nursa, which is the regulator that decides what Eskom is allowed to charge us. Lydia. If I understand correctly, ESKIM is looking for a 15% tariff increase on top of the uh, huge increases they had in the past.
5: Yes, that's correct, Alec. And what they are doing is they, um, the complete account is from the regulating account as well, which allows them to ask for um, shortfalls, which they had over the years, as well as um, any increase that will be um, to the tune of between 12 and 17%. ESCOM representative has done um, a presentation now. I will um, brief you on that if the time allows for that.
0: Yeah, I know. That's, that's, uh, where are you making the presentation? At the, at the public hearing?
5: Yes, I am yeah, at the public hearing now. And what um, ESCOM has just um, submitted the um, submission. Um, they were critically um, contested by civil society um, as well as Ted Blom at the moment. And what they are doing is they've overestimated and they assumed as to what and how much sales they will have. So what has happened now, it's the actual final analysis. As There's a huge shortfall there. They were grilled about the consumer that has to carry the load shedding cost, which they cannot by now estimate as how much it will be. They will come back with that answer, as well as the overspending on the open turbines, that is another question. The circumstances that led to the load shedding, the impact thereof, and the cost. They are not able to, have to give us any answers to that. And then they have this um, deemed energy payment to the tune of 35 million rand, which they say it's to power the grid with the IPPs. Now the IPPs was delayed. And Nersa disallowed that, but yet ESCOM went ahead to the tune of 101 million rand, and the consumer must now put that bill as well.
0: Sure. So you're giving them a rough ride?
5: <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: who, th- this, it, it appears as though it's a, it's a group of NGOs, in other words, civil society um, coming together in, in one voice. Who else is, is in the room uh, grilling Eskom?
5: All right. Um, I'm part of the um, Project 90 by 2030, the um, Climate Justice Group, as well as SAFSI. They are the faith-based organization with AIDC, which is the Alternative Information Center. Um, There are quite a few. And also what we have is... um, ordinary citizens that have made an application to do uh, oral submission. It's those that haven't got a voice. Now, um, it's at the Sun Hotel in Cape Town, and I'm doing a presentation in about two hours' time. And my first thing that I've noticed is that the community at large is not represented here at all, besides us being a civil organisation. But the main industry that must ultimately pay for these increases Those are not fairly representative, it does not reflect anything because here it is hierarchy and um, um, we are not in that space where we can say that this is what we can do. So civil society has come together to have that collective voice.
0: It's so interesting in that in our country we have wonderful laws, wonderful opportunities, something like this, it's a public hearing. But we need to use that, and it's good to see that civil society is, in fact, uh, getting together and, and, and making its voice heard. Why did, how did you get into into the whole activism uh, uh, game, if you like?
5: Um, I, I got into it about a year ago, um, close to about a year and a half. I was actually driving past um, an area at the airport, and I saw the abjecture. Address- poverty that was there, no basic service delivery. And I just wanted to be that person that will enable some of my country um, women and men to find their voice and to stand up to whatever injustice is is, is dealt to them. And that is how I got into the climate change um, program, whereas most of these difficulties that we experience about the floods, about climate um, changing and warming, And I wanted to be that voice that goes to schools to speak to them. I am the chairperson of the African African Alliance Group, which we deal with um, school projects where we introduce climate change and how to combat that. And we're getting a lot of flack from government, really, because um, they do not see climate change as happening uh, or as a crisis. They simply ignore that. And in the SONA, which Mr. Ramaphosa has um, done last year, we acknowledge that there is a problem, but there is no um, ratification as to how it will be dealt with.
0: Wow! So everybody knows it's a problem. You going out there telling people it's a problem, but uh, government is not supporting you in this initiative. So what do you do as a as a citizen? <laughs>
5: You see, um, what we are trying to do is get the awareness out of there, first of all, and surrounding ESCOM, because what we are trying as civil society is move to a just transition. We do know that decommissioning the power stations and the coal, for that instance, it will mean job losses. And that is not something that we would advocate. But our feeling is that there is enough money which ESCOM has procured via loans and um, government bailouts. We do feel there is enough money... To compensate these workers, reskill them in some area where renewable energy is concerned. But even the government, they do not want at all to uncap the renewables that there is. Because we have sun, we have wind, and so much potential in the renewable energy sector, but they refuse to do it because my feeling is, and most of the people that I work with, we feel that the hands is so much in that cookie jar we call is concerned. And at no cost will they want to uncap these renewable possibilities and move to a just transition. They just refuse to.
0: Mm. Well, it's good talking with you, Lydia. Good luck in your presentation this afternoon. How, how many people are, are there who, who are going to be listening to it?
5: Okay, civil society, um, all the organizations that I've mentioned, um, some of them brought about 10 um, um, activists. So we're looking at about 50 activists here. We did a demonstration earlier on outside the hotel and we were asked to leave, although we had permission to be here. So what basically has done, and then the activists came into the room um, where the um, nursery hearings was being done. So what they have done is they actually put us out. And we had placards and everything to say that we must decommission coal. We want a clean energy. And at the moment it's not happening. So we were actually asked to leave or they actually put them out. Um So, in all, with other stakeholders, there could be about 200, here yeah, in and,
0: total. And are they supportive? Are you, when the NGO people give their presentations, do they clap? Do they support you? Do they make it uncomfortable for the nurse of people who are listening?
5: <laughs> what they have done is when ESCOM um, came on to do their presentation, there was, like, a lot of booing.
0: <laughs>
5: but with the... um With civil organizations that are now busy presenting, there's like a lot of clapping go around. And then we were asked to tone it down a little bit because it's a disturbance to the person that's doing the presentation. So we do understand that. So we wait till the presentation is finished and then we do the necessary applause and like really, really loud.
0: Lydia Peterson, uh, more strength to her Elbow In the work that uh, NGOs are doing and putting the other side of the story for far too long, the civil society side of the story has not been heard. Well, we're still with Eskim now and Chris Yelland uh, joins us for a, a little bit of a background on, on what happened on Friday when the Eskim chief executive, Andre de Reta made his public debut. Joining us now is Chris Yelland. Uh, Our go-to man when it comes to anything to do with electricity. And nice to hear, Chris, that you were at Andre de event on Friday. Was it well attended? Uh, Surprisingly, not that many, um, which uh,
6: did surprise me because this was his first uh, public event and coming as it did, you know, on the uh, day after load shedding was introduced in South Africa and uh, stage two, which is continuing today and for the rest of this week. It was really a baptism of fire for him, um, and, I, uh, and I must say uh, it was worth attending.
0: Was Sikonati there, Matrashasha? Uh, because Sikonati has been one of the big uh, uh, critics of Eskom yes. in the past, and now he's become the uh, communications executive.
6: No, he was not there. Um, I think Friday was the 28th of February, and his first day at work would be today uh, and um uh, so we 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 we're we really are looking forward to seeing what he has to say
0: were you surprised by his appointment very surprised a uh, very different
6: approach um by the new uh, ceo and uh, really took uh, i think everybody by surprise Uh, so yeah, uh, definitely it's going to be something to watch going forward. I think it's going to bring a completely new, uh, change, uh, in the, uh, in, in, the communications from Eskom. By the way, I apologize. I, 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 his, his first day of work today in February. I think the uh, meeting with Eskom was on the 28th of January.
0: <laughs> okay, okay, no, but we all thought it was fake news, but anyway, when he was appointed, but, uh, but he confirmed to me, no, no, he's very much there, and he feels that he can make a contribution, so good for him. Just moving on, yes. though, um, Doreta himself, I, I've had the yes. privilege of meeting him, uh, while yes. I was at NAMPAC, I interviewed him, I found him a... Uh, a really decent human being, spent quite a bit of time with him, actually. Uh, But Mm. clearly, that was a few years ago. He's now in the hot seat. How did he come across?
6: Mm. Well, he's a very impressive personality. Uh, You know, his bearing, his uh, uh, approach, and his uh, uh, knowledge of the industry in uh, perhaps rather a short time, uh, (laughs) because he's been at NAMPAC uh, for several years, not exactly in the energy sector, but he does have his sassel background, uh, which I'm sure... Uh, you know, makes him steeped in the world of industry and energy um, because Cecil is such a big energy uh, player on the South African stage and indeed on the global stage. So I think uh, he was very impressive. Uh, but a uh, word of caution, of course, is is that uh, uh, this is not a one-man business and uh, uh, there are 47,000 employees that have to be uh, remotivated. Um They are, I know, in a demoralized state. Um, and we are in the midst of a, a really severe crisis. So this is a testing time, uh, really a crucible, uh, which uh, will hopefully bring out his leadership qualities uh, and enable him to inspire his executive team, his, his board, and the layers of management uh, underneath uh, the board and underneath the Exco
0: All right, well, let's just talk about the facts. He said there would be load shedding in South Africa for the next 18 months. Hmm. What does that mean?
6: Well, when a new leader comes in, it's best to clear out all the closets and skeletons and uh, tell it like it is uh, with the knowledge that you're not to blame. Um, His job is to clear up and clean up. Um, And so he's really announced a new uh, philosophy of maintenance at Eskom. Uh, which uh, will get back to basics, get back to uh, following the detailed maintenance requirements of the original equipment manufacturers and doing maintenance by the book uh, as it should be done uh, with, with uh, plant and equipment. Um, it has not been done the way it should be done uh, for years. Uh, you know, Just as an example, in most of the plants, the midlife refurbishment, which is really critical after 20, 25 years, of operation has not been done uh, for financial reasons and for reasons that they don't appear to have the space to be able to shut down this plant for extended periods of time necessary to do this deep-level maintenance. So they plan to get back to the book, but in the short term, it means more outages, All right, so uh, planned outages, I, um, and that means more main, uh, more, more low-chatting.
0: I get that. So, so in other words, the... There are certain processes that you've got to follow with equipment like this. You're an electrical engineer, mm. so you know this better than, mm. uh, than, than most of us. But they haven't been doing that. The question has to be why, because surely there was somebody who would have said, you can't postpone this. If you postpone this, the consequences are going to be even worse than, uh, than you can imagine.
6: Yeah, you see, this it comes down to short-term thinking. Um, sometimes people, you know, in the pressure of a, a looming election coming up or a 2010 um, uh, Soccer World Cup coming up where the uh, international community's eyes are South Africa, uh, these pressures, political pressures, um, become enormous and uh, management in its eagerness to please and appease um Falls into this short-term thinking, uh, defers maintenance. On, you know, with the thought, oh, we'll catch up with this later. Uh, but uh, you then get into a situation with generation capacity shortages, uh, delays at Madupi and Kusile. Where where you the only way of catching up is to shut down plants and go into load shedding, and it's politically very, very difficult. Uh, politicians started putting a lot of pressure on on, on the organisation. And uh, they do things that they shouldn't do. And it's, it's, it's a message, uh, you know, that uh, never let a politician, you know, dictate your maintenance policy.
0: Yeah, I never allow those who do not understand the uh, practice of resource allocation to be allocating the resources or in, indeed forcing exactly. you to do that. But Chris, <laughs> what about Joburg, though? Johannesburg? Came on mm. last week and said, up yours, Eskim. You, you can have sh- uh, what's it? <laughs> stage two load shedding. We're not coming along with you. How can they do that?
6: Well, it's wonderful. Uh, it's showing what can be done with distributed generation. And if other municipalities were able to do this and did do it, Uh, Then, uh, you know, some of the industrial centers of South Africa would be able to uh, avoid or at least minimize the amount of load shedding, which, uh, you know, is very disruptive on their local economy. Uh, So I I think it's the loudest message we have that uh, we should allow distributed generation and we should allow diversity in the generation sector. It's good for the economy. It's good for customers. Uh, And Eskom clearly cannot meet its obligations. uh, Therefore, why not uh, have customers being part of the solution, municipalities being part of the solution? Uh, This is the future. Uh, There is a global trend away from the centralized monopoly generation uh, through long transmission lines, also monopoly transmission lines, uh, to distribute electricity to customers in distant places. The new world of energy is smaller more flexible uh, generation plants. Uh, that doesn't mean to say there's no room for the legacy big plants. Of course, uh, you wouldn't shut those down. Uh, but uh, one of the ways of managing risk is to encourage diversity. And, that, and, and we're seeing a statement coming from Minister Mantash today, this morning. He announced that they are passing uh, new uh, regulations that is going to allow and open up the space for municipal generation and self-generation by customers to relieve Eskimo of a burden that it clearly can't meet.
0: Yeah, that was at the mining in Darby this morning where he said that mines can now go ahead and, and generate their own power and, without a license. And self-generate. Yeah. But what's Joburg... Chris, sorry, what is Joburg actually doing so that it can ensure mm. that there's no load shedding and is that sustainable?
6: Uh, Well, you may remember, Johannesburg has Kelvin Power Station. Um, It's near the airport, Oortembo Airport, and uh, it's owned by an independent power producer, and it sells electricity to the city of Johannesburg. That is exactly what Cape Town is seeking to do. Uh, perhaps with gas-to-power plants in Cape Town, and with renewable energy IPPs in the Cape area. Um, but at the moment, uh, there, are, uh, you know, there are regulations that inhibit this. Uh, it requires ministerial uh, determination, it requires the approval of NERSA, and up to now they haven't been getting this. Uh, so uh, what Joburg is is a legacy power station with an arrangement that dates back years, uh, but it's bearing fruits now. Uh, And and why not uh, extend this to other municipalities? All the major metros are pushing uh, to be able to firstly generate electricity themselves, as they used to do in the past, as well as to contract with independent power producers, as Johannesburg does. Uh, And this will help their customers and help keep costs down. And this is what Joburg is doing. And why not?
0: That's brilliant. So it actually is devolving the power from Eskom, which makes all the rules, to those on the ground who can perhaps be more innovative.
6: Indeed. And, and it gets back to customers. Why shouldn't customers be able to supplement their electricity needs with certain self-generation if it, is, if it helps them uh, ensure uh, – uh, security of supply, if it helps them keep their costs down. And uh, many customers have different reasons for wanting to uh, generate electricity. Some of them want to just have uh, green energy because they are under pressure from their international partners uh, uh, to, to, to do these things. Uh, and why not? It's done at their cost. Um, but, of course, the incumbents. And by that, uh, I'm really talking about ESCOM, because ESCOM at the moment uh, supplies uh, 95% of electricity in South Africa, and it is designated as the single buyer of electricity for resale. Uh, it buys from the IPPs and it resells in, in South Africa, and uh, that is the uh, regulatory framework under which it operates. Uh, but uh, the, the incumbent, Eskom, sees this new world of electricity as a threat to its business model, to its revenue. And remember, every time people start self-generating, it means elect- less electricity sales by Eskom. And when they sell less electricity, they want to put the price up to compensate for a declining sales volume with a higher electricity price. Uh, and, and so you get into this death spiral of ever-increasing prices, causing people to look for alternatives. Uh, the Sales volumes go down, and then Eskom pushes its price up, And then more people go off the grid. So uh, this uh, so-called death spiral, uh, you know, Eskom sees this as threatening its future business model. Um, But the point is, if it is unable to meet its mandate, as it's clearly unable to do, uh, then we should not uh, penalize the whole economy. We should allow customers to take control of their own energy future.
0: Chris Yelland is the Managing Director of EE Business Intelligence. And while we were talking, I was thinking uh, about the reminder that this gave me of a wonderful book written by Moises Naim uh, called The End of Power. Now, I've mentioned this book before. One of the reasons why I've mentioned this book is because it was also the book that was uh, proposed by Mark Zuckerberg, uh, the founder of Facebook, when he had his Euro of books. And in fact, the very first book that he mentioned was Moises name's End of Power. And just to put this into perspective, the end of what he says in that book is that the old days of, of uh, uh, allocation of, of, of people um, top down telling us what to do are coming to an end or have come to an end. And in fact, the new days are, are going to be much more democratic, much more uh, um, uh, collaborative decision-making, and we're seeing it happening in a lot of ways here in South Africa. The next uh, conversation we'll be having, and the last one for today's program, is on the same theme as well. The port of Gauteng, something that is going to revolutionize, or potentially revolutionize, the whole logistics system, which is terribly clogged up now, um, from the the ports of South Africa, particularly Durban, through to Johannesburg. We'll be talking to the man behind the port of Gauteng in just a moment. Well, as promised, uh, we close off our program today with Francois Norquia. He's the man behind the port of Gauteng. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Francois, tell me a bit about yourself. Uh, Have you been in the property game for a long time?
7: I've been in the property game 32 years Started off as a broker
0: selling stands on the corner of Republican William Nicol. Selling stands on the corner of Republican William
7: Nicol. My glory. on Extension Five. Uh, yeah, when I got into the property business, that was uh, starting to develop. So I worked for an estate agency. We had a portable caravan on the corner of Republic and William Nicol.
0: And, and what else did you do? What, what other um, uh, property developments have you been involved in?
7: I was involved with the development of the Macro in Bonnebouin and the uh, Damlin in Vanberg. Uh, and, uh, I specialized mostly in land. I sold the Limburg Park, uh, where in Park industrial areas today. I identified that and doesn't have an industrial area in the early 90s. Sold that to RPP and, uh, LTA developments. I sold that land, so, uh, I've been a land contractor. <laughs> That's what I've been doing for most of my 32 years in the property business.
0: And now you're looking to do something else, uh, something that could uh, have a huge impact on the efficiency of goods coming from uh, the, the ports through to the heartland of Gauteng. The, the, the port of Gauteng, you call it. When did this, where did this idea start? Uh,
7: my best friend, uh, they've been importing tiles for 40 years, 50 years. And they've always told me that the best place if you want to do an import-export warehouse, the most economical position, is somewhere there, just south of the, the N12, uh, Alberton and near the N3. So for years I knew about uh, that that could be a good position to uh, do a distribution warehousing thing. But uh, industrial commercial wasn't uh, a big flavor of the month in South Africa for many years. You know, you had the retail and the offices. But then eight years ago, I realized this is getting bigger and bigger. Warehousing is becoming a big part of property. And uh, logistics warehouses, I think, is now the number one property class in the world. It's no longer retail and offices.
0: And so you, that's one thing to have an idea, but how do you execute?
7: Well, then um, we drove out there and went to look at the land. And then, to our amazement, we found the land was extremely flat. There's a railway line. provincial roads that uh, dissect each other there and uh, we took an option over the first piece of land 100 hectares next to the highway line and started the town planning application and see if we could get services we battled quite a while to get electricity and then when we got electricity uh, we started buying up the rest of the land there that we could get our hands on and that where we could get big portions that we could do security parks and stuff like that
0: I used to farm in Moy River uh, a few years ago and being on that main thoroughfare, in fact I think the Moy River Toll Plaza is the busiest in the country, when we went through to Peter Maritzburg, which is 45 minutes away, you, you would see the trucks on the road and sometimes it was almost clogged up the road with these freight trucks. But on the other hand, uh, this is this is transport or, or transportation that should be managed by Transnet or Spurnet, the the railway division of Transnet. What you putting together? Have you taken any of that into account?
7: Yes, we've taken that into uh, account. The rail from Durban to Johannesburg is, is slightly problematic because it's a short haul. Um, And and a driver can drive an eight-hour session with a truck uh, from Durban to Joburg. So the rail needs to be very efficient to compete with a road between uh, Durban and Joburg. And the problem is, uh, and that's what we've taken into account, the the piece of land that we bought first has got 2.2 kilometers next to the the railway line. So you can design a very, very efficient terminal and you can employ uh, a newer type of methodology of loading the trains and offloading the trains because you've got all the space. So we think uh, in our terminal we can turn a train around in one hour if we really want to. We're at City Deep and Kazerni and those places it takes up to four days to turn a train around. To so say that again
0: just, slowly you could, you'd you be able to do it in one hour but they can yeah. it can take up to four days.
7: At city deep in Kazenian. and that's not me saying that. That's a World Bank study that was done by Dr. Duncan Peters from the Treasury. It's part of uh, Minister Tito Mboweni's uh, business plan that he uh, presented in August and asked everybody to comment on. In that, it's, there's the World Bank report about the inefficiencies in rail, and that's why Minister Tito Mboweni is supportive of private terminals.
0: Well, I guess if, if, if I was an importer and I knew that my container was going to be stuck in City Deep for four days, uh, I wouldn't go via rail. I'd rather just put it on a truck and bring it straight to where I needed to. So is, uh, am I thinking in, the, in a rational sense here?
7: Yeah, no, that's what, what, what people do. And uh, that's why until about 10 years ago, very few containers was unpacked in, in Durban. Now they not only I mean, they don't bring the container necessary to Durban to Joburg. uh Importers unpack the container in Durban, leave it there, and then uh, bring the goods up on a flatbed truck because the railers are inefficient.
0: Okay, so on the weekend in the Sunday Times, uh, I read uh, an interview with Portia Darby, uh, who used to be a DG in uh, in I think it was Department of, of Public Enterprises. So she knows. A bit about Eskim, uh, about Transnet rather. Well, her husband, her ex-husband of 10 years ago, uh, used to be the CEO, Brian Mulefi. She's now talking tough and talking about rejuvenating Spurnet. Has she been in touch with you? I know it's very early days for her, but what you're proposing seems like it it would be an answer to a maiden's dream. Uh,
7: They haven't been in touch with me, uh, Transnet. (laughs) Uh, but uh, the World Bank has been in touch with me, They're apparently doing some study on uh, the, the Netcore line. They call that the Netcore line and Durban uh, uh, container terminal. But Transnet hasn't been in contact with me.
0: But if they were to get hold of you, how could you work together?
7: Simple, uh, but um, uh, just I uh, want to say, I think uh, the, the time is ready for a private terminal. A, not not a Transnet terminal. Not that I've got something against uh, Transnet, but uh, private enterprise uh, I think just will work a bit quicker than uh, a SOE. And it's on private land, it's private owned, and uh, we funded it privately, so we prefer to to have a private operator there. But if Transnet can deliver performance standards, and uh, they, uh, then we would gladly let them develop the terminal. But uh, I don't want to let them develop the terminal, and it uh, operates like City Deep in Kazuni. Because no. we've got the surrounding land, and the better the terminal works, the better, the more valuable the surrounding land would be. No, so I, we would prefer yeah. an operator there that can uh, turn around a train in an hour. Then the demand for the rest of our land, for warehousing and the rest of our land, increases.
0: Got it. But uh, Francois, what I'm getting at is if Transnet. Wants to get more rail traffic, which surely has to be the objective, and certainly was what uh, I was reading um, in, in the interview with uh, Porsche Derby. Then, surely, if you can help to that yep. degree, they don't have to take yes, over your yes. terminal. Yeah,
7: they, they must just um, allow private, but um, I think they will. Uh, we're we, the, the landlords, we're not the, the operators, we're talking to a few operators. And uh, once we've decided on one, uh, that operator, whether it's A, B or C, we'll then go to Transnet and ask for two trains a week in the beginning or three trains and and then yeah, just grow it from there. And I'm sure it will grow very quickly because people will see that uh, the Port of Ganteng's terminal is quite efficient. So you get your container within hours instead of days. And yeah, I can't see that Transnet will refuse it because we, we, we want to assist the government because the government has got this road to rail initiative. And if we've got a terminal that is much more efficient than the state ones. Uh, I'm sure they all gladly would want to work with us and uh, allow us to uh, operate the terminal. And then you just have to book trains with Transnet from Durban Harbor to uh, Port of Gauteng.
0: It's a massive project, uh, certainly in terms of size. What's the investment involved here? How much money uh, might have, might be invested in Port of Gauteng over the period of development?
7: If it's fully developed at today's price of uh, cost of warehousing, and ours will be cheaper because we've got flat land, so our our earthworks cost will be cheaper. Uh, You can do about 1.2 uh, million square meters there, and uh, 8,000 rand uh, uh, square meter for the warehousing on our land roughly will give you a a cost of about 10 billion rand one can uh, expect as the total investment cost.
0: So why are you (laughs) investing when everybody else, not everybody else, but most (laughs) other people are running away from South Africa and certainly not investing?
7: Alec, I grew up here, I don't want to go and live somewhere else, and I'd rather have control over my investments than putting them in a foreign fund, and I believe in these logistics warehouses. BlackRock, the, the largest asset manager in the world, in July last year issued a report where they're saying that uh, their highest conviction in property is logistic warehouses, and I prefer to invest in property because of the cash flow it gives. Like cash flow is sanity and uh, you, know, you can have a lot of assets but if you don't have cash flow, uh, so for my old age I would prefer to have properties that are uncared and uh, I think logistics properties are the investment to have when you grow old and have cash flow.
0: And in South Africa?
7: Oh, we must solve these problems, and it's, I'm going nowhere. You know, I had permanent residence in Australia. I went there and look, I can't fit in there. I can't live in that cold weather in, in England. So, uh, my attitude is just, I have to uh, bunker down and make it work and do my bit and hope everybody will do it and, uh, you know, I'll just make it work and do the best, you know, my attitude is to succeed despite the government. You know, it might be a very negative statement. I do be creative, be positive, uh, think about solutions. Don't spend your time too much on politics and you know, focus, damn it, focus. And uh, uh, that's my motto and I'm staying and I'm going to do the best I can.
0: Francois Norkia, the man behind Port of Gauteng. And I think you could almost say um, succeed despite some of the obstructive forces in government because there are enough productive people, there are enough people who really want to make it happen. And, and I, I urge you to go and read that uh, article in the Sunday Times with Portia Darby, uh, the new director general of, um, uh, well, not director, she was director general, she's now the new managing director of Transnet. I met her, her, her brother, uh, Ron Darby um, was one of our interns at MoneyWeb many years ago. He's gone on to have a, quite a stellar career in financial journalism. Uh, and she uh, w- would pop around to the office from time to time, an incredibly impressive person. And you could see, certainly from the way she came across over the weekend in that, or in that interview, that she is uh, very mindful of what needs to be done and if the Port of Gauteng is going to support her endeavors, then, well, let's hope they find each other. Well, this has been Rational Radio, and I hope you've enjoyed our program, a rather extended program uh, for today. We will be back again, as always, between noon and 1 p.m. next week. Until then, from Alec Hogg, cheerio.